quotes. Wild and wise women and men who embrace who they are and live a radically authentic life. They defy the conventions, overcome life obstacles and challenges, pursue their passions, follow their vision. They live at the center of who they truly are. They are great teachings and soul medicine in their personal journeys, and this is what this podcast is about. Hello, my name is Sonia Rato, and this is The Wild and Wise Show. The great fortune to meet Eric Archer during my yin yoga teacher training with the Jamsi School of Yin Yoga. And this training is led by the phenomenal Beef Mithofer, Eric Archer, and Julia Kupke. And so I'm delighted um, to, have, to share with you today my conversation with Eric. Eric Archer is a multi-instrumentalist musician, is an artist, and what I, I love with his work is that he's a poet drawing inspiration from nature and its beauty. He's a fantastic woodcarver and painter. He's known for his organic world sculptures that channel natural patterns and the fluidity of light. He's a lover of nature and art in all forms. He expresses this love through artistic practices which overlap music, meditation, yoga, cooking, teaching and poetry. So here is my conversation with Eric and I will meet you on the other side. I have been reflecting uh, recently on the, on the relation between uh, yin yoga and uh, creativity especially how yin yoga can nurture creativity and how creativity can nurture our yoga. And I immediately thought, um, Eric, you would be the perfect person <laughs> to explore that topic on the subject because you're a fantastic multifaceted artist and a fantastic yoga teacher who is extremely creative. So thank you for accepting my invitation to join the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for the invite. So if you don't mind, I... I mean, let's jump right away because there is a question that uh, burned my tongue, um, <laughs> which is, um, how would you define creativity? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, there's so many ways to, to feel into the creative impulse, right? The desire to sort of, as a human, take part in this beautiful energy that is created all around us right elementally so i think you know the creative spirit as a human and creativity is drawn from participating in this amazing creative uh, unfolding that it's around us through the elements through the other life forms and you know speaking of the great creative forces of the universe the the divine forces that create this this 
experience, I think the human desire to tap into that, to really kind of palpably participate in that process is maybe the first way that I start to think about it. Like it's an inevitable process to want to, that things are being created and destroyed. And yet we want to very kind of fundamentally uh, participate in that. And so I think there's an element of that just essential human component and, and life-giving qualities of creativity. And then how we uniquely express it is such, um, such a reflection of our own attractions to, to, to the processes of life, of creation, uh, you know, cre creation and destruction and beauty, really, right? The beauty that we seek out in our lives. And of course, art and creativity doesn't always have to, quote unquote, technically be beauty or beautifying or beautiful, but that what we're drawn to, what we find interesting and fascinating sort of feeds that. And so, you know, there's so much to sort of get into with regards to specifics around creativity and art, but I think the connection to yin yoga is so fascinating insofar as yin yoga is, is such a practice of non-doing. And so how, you know, in such an interesting way, mm -hmm. does non-doing feed the creative impulse. And so it's almost this container, a, re a receptive place, a type of slightly complicated sitting meditation that really nurtures this awareness, this sensitivity to the creative impulse that is all around us, that is within us and unfolding constantly. And so I find that that has often been, whether it's in the yin yoga practice itself or that yin quality that manifests in other ways in my life that then feeds directly into creativity. I feel also that lots of people prevent themselves from being creative or think that they cannot be, be creative because they identify being creative and being an artist. Mm. And I think that sometimes there is um, uh, a confusion between being creative and being an artist because I feel, and I would love to have your your thoughts about that, that you can be creative without necessarily being an artist. Absolutely. Yeah, I appreciate you, you know, bringing that to our attention because it's, <clears throat> I mean, there's so many stories, right, of, of what, what it means to be good at something or what level someone should be at in which to then publicly share a certain creative process or creative impulse or dream or desire. And, you know, I, as a musician, I think that's one of the ways that I feel it so poignantly is many people have uh, certain ideas of what they should or should not be before they're able to call themselves musicians or share music. And, and so, yeah, the creative impulse, right, this desire, I think I came across a quote um, years ago, which really resonated with me. It said something to the effect of uh, creativity is the ability to, to allow yourself to make mistakes, to be in the process of exploration and to make mistakes. And artistry is the ability to know which mistakes to keep. And so this process- Oh, I love that. It's, it's beautiful. nice, right? Yeah. Yes. I, I've constantly described this as people say, you know, there's two questions that I often get is, uh, one is how long have you been working on uh, your work say, you know, I'm a wood carver and painter. How long have you been making this work? And, you know, I can on paper say, oh, it's been a decade that I've been making this particular body of work or whatnot. 
And then, you know, if I was really honest, I would say, you know, I've been working on this since I was born, like since I can remember. And I don't mean that in sort of like a cheeky kind of like funny way. I, I genuinely mean that as I've, I've always been fascinated with the, you know, the, the cracks and the, the scars of tree bark, right. Or looking at an old door at an old barn or an old building or how the paint peels off of an old, you know, farm cart or these sorts of things, how a tree will decay in the forest or the mushroom will, will eat away slowly at the inner bark of a tree and, and how those patterns have always influenced how I understood, uh, these kind of like beauty manifesting in time in that, those natural processes. So the same way around artistry, you know, people say, well, how long, you know, so that's the first question, how long have you been making your work? And in some ways the creative impulse is always there. So these processes are always happening. Although sometimes we can really formally say, oh, this is when such and such practice or such and such idea or art started, but it's always kind of happening. And the second question is sort of like, how did you learn to do this? And I think of Oh, that's funny because it's exactly what I thought when I saw when I was on your website and I saw, you know, on one of the section of your website, you share your creative process mm. and we see how you carve and the time and all the detail. And I'm like, how did you learn that? It's amazing. Right. Yeah, well, it is. And that's a, it's of course a we're humans, again, that creative impulses, we're so curious, right? We're so curious on how did you learn this? I mean, again, as a storyteller, right? And, and you and I have, and in our yin uh, explorations together have, have really touched on the storytelling components because that's, it, it's so important and, and it's so meaningful, right? The art becomes incredibly meaningful when we have the stories behind them. So the second question, how did you learn it, right? And I, there's certainly techniques that I have learned, right? And, and that's a, a meaningful part of the process. And the other part is that the learning happens through accidents as well, right? Yes. So going back to that line of artistry is knowing which mistakes or which mm -hmm. accidents. And so in this particular body of work that I've been making, you know, a funny backstory, which um, I'm not sure if you saw on my website, there's a, a previous body of work where I used to make uh, wall sculptures out of tree bark, mostly different species of birch, bachula uh, uh, trees. And I fell in love with the birch tree when I really moved to the East Coast. I mean, there's some birch. I grew up in, in California, in the Bay Area, outside of San Francisco. Um, and there's not many birch trees out there. Um, it's, of course, not northern climates, and it's not very forested, at least in the Bay Area. And people ornament them landscape-wise in their yards and such, but um, you really get these large birch trees when you get into the northern boreal forests, right? So up into, you know, New York and, and above, up into Maine, where I am now, um, just at this moment, there's is really where I fell in love with the, the birch tree. So anyways, and there's so many examples of birch bark being used, you know, artistically and functionally utilitarian-wise um, by Native peoples in the northern climates all over the world, not just in the Americas. So... I had a friend come to my studio when I was starting my wood carvings and uh, she said, wow, Eric, you, you were making sculptures out of tree bark and now you're making your own tree bark. And I thought that was just such a beautiful, of course, I was still working with the element of wood, but the textures and the lines and the natural patterns, the abstract nature of the carvings that I do uh, were really channeling that love and that intelligence from the tree bark that I had been studying for so many years. And so the idea of right, artistry is knowing which accidents to keep is A, that first piece, creativity is being 
you know, you know, might call it fearless or might be calling it feeling safe enough, feeling unattached, non-attachment to making mistakes, being silly, making noises, right? As a, as a musician, being able to feel free to make sounds that I'm not attached to, they're not gonna become what my music is or is not, but I feel safe enough to really explore the edges of what's possible and there'll be many mistakes. And yet when that mistake does present itself, where the paint drips in just a particular way or the bark rips in just a particular way or the, the wood grain will cut, you know, or the, you know, the gouge, which is a carving tool, will cut in a particular way or the wood grain has presented itself in a particular way that I notice that accident and say, wow, look at that. And then I start to um, yeah. follow So, it, it's yeah. this idea of following the process, trusting the process and being open to all the possibilities. And so that, of course, is artistic as well, how to follow natural patterns in our own intelligence, in our own way of seeing the world and feeling it, and how we can express that in our own unique way. So I think it's it's really absolutely that non-attachment and that openness, as well as honoring of our real intel, our innate intelligence and what we're naturally drawn to, right, beauty and otherwise. Absolutely, absolutely. And there is another dimension Um, that I think is so common to the creative process and to yin yoga, it's this idea of time. This idea that mm. allowing time, patience and stillness is, is very important in the creative process and in yin yoga. And, and I'm coming back to your website because there is this beautiful text that you wrote about your artist statement. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you say each work created is achieved by learning to wait properly, allow, allowing the true form to emerge in the right timing. Here, underlying pattern languages emerge, a flame, a flower blossom, sparks in flight, the first snow, light on water, the curl of smoke, simple, spontaneous, vital, the, the stillness of movement. Mm. I love that. I absolutely love that. And um, and I think that this is something that also is probably the disease of the Western world is that we are not allowing ourselves enough time and we are not patient anymore and we don't cultivate stillness. Therefore, it's more challenging for us to let creativity, you know, you know it takes time for creativity to blossom. <laughs> mm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, there's, it doesn't mean it's easy either, right? I mean, the idea of, especially in our, as you're mentioning, right, the accelerated way that we live in the West, the, the desire for immediate gratification, right? The idea that one would have to spend time working on something. We want to, we want it now. We want to feel the highs now. We want to feel the fulfillment now. And in so many ways, the human condition doesn't work that way. And the natural world doesn't, of course. So I think you're absolutely, you know, uh, pointing to a deep, deep sort of misunderstanding that takes place. And especially around creativity, the idea that, that somehow space and time is not an integral ingredient in the process. Yeah. And so, uh, and of course we're bombarded with images that, you know, and without going deeply into the entire 
marketing, economic, and capitalistic models that want us to believe that it should be immediate and that someone can give us that thing or we can buy it or if we just do this, it will happen much faster. There certainly are ways to accelerate processes and some things do happen in the moment and yet other things unfold for years, for lifetimes, and we don't entirely know while it's happening. And, and, and so we can cultivate that patience to to observe that and practices like yin yoga, like deep uh, practices of stillness, whether seated meditation or in the natural world that observe this fascinating thing, because what, what is stillness really anyways, right? As we become still in a yin yoga posture, we still notice all the things that are still moving. And it's just a matter of relationship of what, when one thing becomes still and other things becomes more apparently in movement. And, you know, the beauty of, of working with visual art is that something, I mean, of course there's animation and there's moving parts that can be visual art, but with wood carvings that I'm working with, there's the desire to cultivate a sense of that movement. And yet the piece is actually entirely still. Yes. And, and that process yeah. is mirrored in yin too, right? So that, that right timing that I was referring to uh, is often a different timing than what our mind or the human mind wants it to say, oh, well, it'd be great to have a deadline for this, you know? And, uh, and at the same time, things must go through their rightful process. And in many ways that leads to their most beautiful forms and patience is a part of that. And of course, knowing when to push and when to, uh, yeah. And when to let go or surrender to the process. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. And there's a dance of the two, right? So it's not yes. one or the other. There's times when we must persevere and push through. And there's other times where we need to just sit and allow and surrender, as you say. Um, and that's the epic, that's the epic dance of, of the creative spirit is kind of following it and, and, and not being attached to the highs or lows that come, but knowing that the process itself is, um, is what actually is the real teaching unfolding. I like this expression of the epic dance mm. of the creative process. That's, that's so beautifully said, the epic dance. <laughs> it is. It's challenging. You know, I think, I think many people, you know, if I were to be totally frank about it, the artistic path is, uh, it's, it can be, when I say epic dance, it, it brings one high and it brings one low you know, and the process of, of, of being prepared for that, you know, it's something, of course, we, we all want to engage with this beautiful experience of being an artist. And yet there's qualities of it that are quite challenging, which we know from so many classic examples yeah. from history, uh, women and men artists all over the world who have really struggled in their creative yeah. practices. And so the same thing comes up right in the yin practice. Often we sit and it's not comfortable. It's not easy. And yet the process itself is so incredibly healing and nourishing that uh, we would never want to not invite that process, that depth, even if it comes with the challenge. And so how, how, um, how yin yoga is helping you in your creative process and your art? Is there like... How did I come? Yes. How, how did, I mean, I mean... I guess that my question in the back of my mind, it's a double question is how yin yoga, how did yin yoga show up in your life? Mm. And how did you come to wave um, yin and art in the teaching and in your life? 
Mm-hmm. I just, you know, because it's such like a beautiful alchemy that I'm curious to understand how. And I, I guess it's been very yeah. organic, uh, but I'm, I'm curious to understand. So the weaving of them. Yeah, no, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful question. The, the weaving of the two together, you know, there's, there's the, there's the similar spirit of they, they seem like very different streams. And, um, you know, when I first encountered yin yoga through, I mean, I had, I had experienced people teaching dimensions of the yin practice in, in taking asana classes. Um, but I really first formally studied yin yoga with Bith Mittoffer, my, you know, my friend and now uh, colleague teaching together. And what I noticed was two things. First, the, the idea of coming into certain postures with my body and then just remaining in them, although they might seem kind of twisted shapes or kind of, con, you know, contorted or odd shapes. I noticed, you know, in that same way that I was talking about artistry from the get-go in my own life is that I had actually kind of been doing stuff like that myself, my whole life. I had come into interesting postures and say, wow, or if I had felt tightness in my body, or if I was just waking up or I was moving really slowly and wanted to feel deeply into my body, you know, often if I was experiencing some discomfort or tightness or an injury, and so I'd very slowly, very animalistically coming into certain shapes of my body and just feel what it felt like, you know, not just 10 seconds or 30 seconds or three minutes into it, you know, minutes upon minutes into it and say, what does this feel like? What happens if I just stay here? I don't want to injure myself. I don't want to feel yeah. you know sharp pain, but what happens if I just remain on this edge? And so, you know, the language around that started to develop when I, when I began studying in yoga, but that had always been happening for me. And I think you know, maybe uh, people will relate to that quality too, or just ways that we move with stillness and we feel really deeply into our body, sometimes, you know, in, in unexpected ways. And then the process also of really pairing the yin practice with its, you know, its, uh, its origins philosophically in Taoism. And Taoism uh, had been something I, I had been studying, you know, lay as a lay practitioner studying for many years. And um, I had had friends who introduced me to the Tao Te Ching and had been in different way kind of transcendentalists and students of Eastern philosophy and friends of mine, um, maybe stories for another time. But and amidst that was also studying Zen and something about Zen Buddhism and Zen practice and specifically the Zen arts had always been very fascinating to me. You know, there's very traditional yes. Zen arts, yes. the way of tea, the way of flower arranging, the bow. Yeah, they call that the contemplative, contemplative arts, Zen arts. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And so really this kind of interesting way, and it's in the West as well, you know, the arts in spiritual practice. Um, and, and so we see this in Gregorian chanting and other types of practices uh, in, say, Judeo-Christian traditions. And, of course, in, in the, the Hindu traditions of chanting and kirtan and other types of uh, drawings and, and uh representations of the deities and so all over the world there are these expressions right I mean there's more than I can list here but what I found was so interesting is Taoism and Zen had always had this understanding that at a certain point the idea of speaking philosophy you know continuing to lecture about philosophy of exactly how you should find your path how you should find the path how you should awaken how you should enlighten you know words seem to fall away philosophy seems to only go so far so deep and what in these traditions of Taoism and zen so fascinatingly is 
what they do is instead of using philosophy, they actually turn to the arts, right? They turn to calligraphy, they turn to painting, they turn to dance and theater, they turn to poetry, which is like... Or even to the body who like practices of, you know, of Qigong. Of, uh, exactly. That yeah. might be uh, correlated, but there is also something that is very energetic in the approach And if I remember, if I, if I read well, Taoism is also connected to one of the most ancient shamanic tradition in Asia. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Elementally connected. Mm -hmm. There's a heavy mm -hmm. ritualistic component, right? So using yeah. elements uh, and, you know, natural artifacts in which to conduct rituals, balance. You know, there's a, a, an entire esoteric system in many different streams of Taoism as a folk um, animistic religion. And, and it's very embodied, like, you know, mm -hmm. compared to the philosophy of the Western world and I'm French. So, I mean, it's just like philosophically in France and in Germany, it's very, you know, it's Kant, Descartes, it's very rational. It's this mm -hmm. kind of aspect of philosophy. Whereas Eastern philosophies are so connected with the body. It's embodied. It doesn't stay, um, In the Western world, philosophy is in the realm of the mind. It, it's very mental, whereas in the East, it plays with other subtle layers of, of the realities and the body, I, I feel. Yeah, well, that, I think you're right on. It's absolutely there because in a certain way, thinking about, you know, in Zen, they have this very you know, classic way of describing it, is that all these techniques, all these philosophies, They're, they're, they're all just ways of pointing at, at the awakened state or the moon, right? They're the finger pointing to the moon. Well, the moon is the awakened state. It's the, it's the true embodiment. It's, it's living in our true path. It's compassion. It's love. It's the divine source. And yet all these techniques of particular body practices or meditations or philosophies or technique, right, is the, is the finger pointing to the moon, but they're not the moon. So never to never to mistake the technique or the philosophy that we particularly are pursuing as being the actual state. And so what's so beautiful about the, the Taoist and the Zen arts is they're, you know, connecting it back to how is yin yoga woven into my creative practices. Yin yoga seem to inevitably kind of really naturally segue those practices of, of stillness and contemplation that are also, you know, parts of my creative practices where instead of waxing philosophical about how I think my path is going, right. Uh, or, or what philosophy I think yeah. someone could gain, you know, how I could communicate what's happening almost in an intellectual way, you know, in, in the Zen tradition, they would say, contemplate this calligraphic, you know, stroke, you know, or like, look at this flower arrangement. And that is in the expression of the awakened state or, you know, et cetera, right. Drink this tea, watch this, watch the ceremony of preparing simple tea and how the elements come together. That is an expression of the, of, 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 of the, of the way. Yeah. And in many, that, that is, uh, it's non-philosophical. It's more creative and expressive. And it's that direct, you know, they use this term. Um, it's a direct pointing. It's one of those really essential ways, still a finger pointing to the moon, but it's a really essential way to point to the, to the awakened mind. And I think yin yoga is a very fascinating way of just not trying to accomplish anything and recognizing and, and reminding ourselves of that epic truth, which is held within the Buddhist traditions, 
that that and in many others, if I should absolutely say, is that it's already here. There's this this idea that we need to strive and accomplish something is is often leads us to feel that what we currently have is not enough. And instead, recognizing through, say, a simple posture held on the floor that we can sit in that truth of what we already have is being enough. And I feel that that, you know, feeds into my artistry and weaves them together. Certainly the yin practice is a way that I derive peace, understanding, yeah. vision, you know, so many things it's hard to put one's finger on. Right. Um, yeah. And sometimes you just practice it for the sake of itself. It's not like I'm practicing yin yoga so that I can make better art. Well, you know, I, I certainly yeah. feel that art is influenced by practices of stillness and contemplation and yet I don't practice them to make art mm -hmm. and so it's a really great question that you're asking there's a direct connection and yet they're not dependent upon each other yeah and the 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 first time I did um, a yin practice with you and beef I had the feeling where you have beef guiding and you either chanting or singing or Uh, playing music or sometimes silence or you know or sometimes it's just a drum I had the feeling that my entire one hour practice was like a shamanic journey mm. where I was basically gently moving um, into an altered state mm -hmm. of consciousness and I'm not and it's not when I say that it's not like I'm, I was spacing out but it was more like a self-inquiry and a self-discovery, but in a different state. And, um, and that's, how, that's, how, that's how I, I, in a way, perceived it because I felt it as like it was like a, a doorway where my mind was in the background and I could settle more into um, another um, quality of, of being. Mm -hmm. I don't know if what I'm saying makes sense, but no, this is how I felt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, no, it, it, it absolutely resonates. And it's, uh, you know, it's such a delicate balance of what we're working with, with the yin practice specifically, as well as like the larger understandings that Biff and I have, yeah. have come to work with in our own practices and together. The idea of, of quote unquote teaching You know, how much of that is, do we really have something that we're trying to uh, invite someone into, or are we trying to create, a, or, you know, something very specific that we want people to do, or is it more something that we create a space that yes. is, is that doorway that you're pointing to that, that, that reminds all of us mm -hmm. and, and, and invites us to that doorway that then we can open the door in each of us to then walk through our, on our own, right? Because we have to do that work ourselves yeah. and the journey of, of the personal vision work um, certainly manifests in the shamanic traditions um, mm -hmm. as well as just these ideas of feeling into, you know, it's outside of this intellectual cerebral way that, that you were just speaking about, right? Like that this non-philosophical way of understanding our path. We can certainly philosophize and there, there's a place for that. I appreciate philosophy, absolutely. And yet there's also really important work that takes place in a non-intellectual way that we really feel through the body. And in some, so many ways, we can't do that for each other. We can only create spaces that access those open doors in ourselves. 
and then in, in hope and invite each other to walk through our own doors and, and walk that path, um, which only we can walk. And it's, so and it's, it's uh, yeah, and it's a practice that talks to the spirit or the soul. It's not a practice that talks to the mind because the, 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 the elements that you're using are not, you know, it's poetry, um, drum, uh, you know, posture, um, storytelling. So it's not, you know, articulated rational things. It's, it's kind of like, you know, you're creating a landscape. Uh, right, and right. everybody can can uh, have their soul explore that landscape, but their own way. It's and it, it's in that sense that I feel like it's almost like a soul journey or almost like a soul retrieval. That are like also if we want to discuss shamanism. But I personally was so you know yeah, it's this idea you're creating a texture. And for me, because it's not like you're not just putting a music, you know, you're not just putting a Spotify playlist in the background. You know what I mean? It's not mm-hmm. that. You're using specific sound like basuri, Indian um, tribal sound, or really specific, you know, vibrations that for me are really creating that, that state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's so nice to to hear how you are feeling in the, into those experiences as, you know, we're just coming off of this teacher training together. And so you were experiencing those just in such a deep way. And, and I think there's, you know, there's so many things that come to mind when you're saying this. I mean, one is, you know, the beauty of poetry, right, is, and Biff's says this so beautifully that it's, it's, it's the most concise form of story. When one hears a poem, I mean, you can't really argue with a poem. It's not an argue. It's not like a, it's not a philosophical treatise. Right? <laughs> now, yes. if I said, well, everyone needs to do 20 minutes of pranayama every day and they need to stand on their head and they need to work to purify their ego. And well, that's more philosophy. It doesn't mean it's inherently untrue. I mean, it might be my perspective or someone's perspective, um, but we can more sort of intellectually engage it and say, well, does everybody need to do that? Or wait, I yeah. tried that. And did it help me or how? how yeah. Me? Yeah. And instead, when we say, you know, you don't have to be good. You don't have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. Right. So this Mary Oliver poem, the wild geese as one example, right. How, um, how can you argue with the poem of Antonio Machado or poem right, of Rumi? It's yeah. impossible. <laughs> right. And it, it's, it almost, there's a disarming quality of it that it's not about, it doesn't access the body, the human body, the human spirit, soul in that place. Yes. Where, now it might land in a really powerful way, or it might land in a way that opens us and, and maybe we, we don't resonate with it as much, but we're certainly not thinking about, do I agree with this poem or not? Do I think that that's my path? You know, that those questions aren't necessarily happening. It's softening those voices. And then the musicality is such a magical dimension to sharing music um, this past, you know, say decade with Biff is really, I am a particular lover of acoustic instruments from around the world. So these instruments are, are, elemental they come from the earth you know the bansuri is a reed flute it, it grew in oh it's amazing oh my the god soil, right and so yes. like the, the tabla or the frame drum you know mm-hmm. the frame drum that I, that I would play i i 
I cleaned the deer hide down from when it had fur and blood and things on it. So I, it's an element, like it's, it's from the earth. It's from an animal's body. It's like this communion with the natural world and all the intelligence that uh, that has, not just the process of cleaning the hide and stretching it and these sorts of processes, but the sound that it makes is from the earth. It's those, those natural patterns. And I, I also am a lover of electronic music. There's nothing that I'm saying is better per se about acoustic instruments or elemental music, but for the purposes of meditation and the yin practice, there's something that just so, uh, so fundamentally speaks to the human body when we hear, you know, the resonance of, yes. of a skin, the skin, you know, the, the, the hide of a, of skin mm. on a drum or the flute, right. The breath wood resonating like these sorts of things. So it, it's yeah, very it's, primal. It's, it talks to your pri primordial instincts and to your, yeah, it's very, it's yeah, it's direct connection to the soul mm -hmm, <laughs> and yeah. to the body. Mm -hmm. And in your in your artist path, you had uh, you have had many musical collaborations, and I've been like really amazed uh, by this um, collaboration that you had with uh, maybe I'm not going to pronounce well his name Peter Coates. Yep. Yeah. Um, who, who is playing the Japanese uh, koto, and you are playing the Indian bansuri flute? I think the collaboration is called Cumulus. Exactly. Yeah. And it, it's kind of like literally amazing. And you had also lots of like collaboration with um, with Pre Prema, mm -hmm. um, and uh, in a more like it's more like Sanskrit mantra world for music. And mm -hmm. I've been curious to to um, I think personally that our collaboration, any type of collaboration, artistic collaboration, is super always very rich, but. You seem to have had lots of collaboration in your in your artist life. So, why are artistic collaboration also important for you, and how do they happen, and how do they nurture you? Hmm. Well, such a beautiful. Question. It's a big question. <laughs> no, it's great, and you know, I sometimes it's uh, it's such an interesting process of of you know, I'm reflecting as you ask me, like, how much have I sought out collaboration, or do I just uh, love being in relationship with others right you know i mean there's something to be said about that right a personal creative practice and yes and a, say a meditative practice right because that's what we're really talking about when does the creative practice merge and blur into a meditative spiritual practice and how can they actually be the same thing and with regards to of course there's certain i can i can do sitting meditation practice by myself but then when i'm sitting in meditation with 20 of us in a yoga teacher training, geez, there's a different energy, right? It's, I mean, and this is the Sangha, right? This is practicing in community. And so collaboratively speaking, you know, there's been a fascinating way that just people that are also creative and exploring edges of their own instruments or, or uh, processes or, or particular mediums, how we gravitate towards each other, right? When I first met Peter, um, who's a dear friend. And it's so great that you're mentioning Peter Coates and Cumulus just because I had been thinking about him in the past few days um, and listening to Koto music actually <laughs> on Christmas, ironically, uh, which uh -huh. just tickled me in a particular way, uh, culturally speaking, but just how he, 
how he shared that instrument. He had lived in Japan for many years and was a professor of English. And then when he lived in the Hudson Valley of New York and we became fast friends and the Indian Bansuri is not a traditional Japanese flute, but there is the shakuhachi, which is a bamboo flute from, from Japan. And so we kind of were, were finding this language that, that could speak to each other and almost nod and imitate each other in similar ways, but um, were very distinct still and created this beautiful outgrowth of our love of world music, as well as our love of say ambient music and, uh, and natural sounds and things like that, that we were trying to channel through the instruments. So I think, you know, first just the joy of collaborating with other artists uh, people, musicians, whatever their their discipline may be, there's just such a beautiful uh, relational uh, enjoyment there, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and and then there's a way that it just, you know, my friend Prema Mai is such a dear friend of mine, and um, and our work together. Actually, we met through she Prema has also worked with Biff for many years, and. Uh, I first met them together, actually, the first teacher training that I took with Biff Premo was the musician, the resident musician, and uh, we we hit it off immediately and played music together um, through her invitation, really, and and I, I discovered something and encountered something in the bhakti practice and the mantra music that she had embodied and she carried that was different than other uh, experiences that I had had with mantra and with Kirtan and things like that. And Prema has such a beautiful story um, in her own journey and complicated and, you know, just very, very rich. But but when we came together, the, the invitation to create music that was certainly traditional using traditional mantras that she had grown up in that tradition of, of the, the Vaishnava uh, Bhakti tradition, but then was open to this sort of world folk music. She grew up actually in Chile and then moved to Europe, spent some time in France and Spain. And and, uh, and yet these say one of the instruments that we've played together is the charango or the ronroco. So these instruments from South America that are more akin to maybe where she uh, first was hearing music. Of course, the guitar is, is sort of worldwide. And so we had the guitar and the charango and, and, the, and she, her playing the madal drum and then singing. Um, these these mantras and so the, the fusion of bringing these different traditions together again we want to be very as a multicultural artist and student of 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 traditions from all over over the world we one wants to be sensitive right of course the uh to to study in a way that's respectful and knowledgeable in the tradition uh that that these instruments come from right because if the instruments come from the land it's the people that were in relationship with that land that created the instruments and wanting to not uh, ignore the really the deep richness and history that comes from that. And yet unabashedly to still uh, really bring honor and reverence to these instruments and these traditions by sharing them in new and exciting ways that really re- reflect the multiculturalism that, that we are able to live in in a globalized society and so anyways that's a larger story that's very meaningful to me but prema was another example of a very unexpected uh collaboration yeah. that that really enriched and fed my heart in a way that was so unexpected and so if you would have told me you know 15 years ago hey you're gonna play uh you're gonna play mantra music um, <laughs> and you're gonna tour in europe with 
you know, wow. the yogi, well, what would that mean? You know? And I would say, oh, well, geez, I, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and yet to remain open, right. There's again, that creativity being open to make mistakes or, you know, I didn't know, is this going to be a good thing to play mantra music with this new friend or oh wow, but it just yeah. feels so right. And yeah. so if I had taken it at face value or just discarded it and said, I wasn't open to, you know, but it could have been a mistake too, or not a mistake, but it could have been like, oh, well, this doesn't totally make sense. And then we would have just, you know, maybe continued to go our separate ways or whatnot. Mm -hmm. That would have been fine, but I was willing to open myself to that opportunity. And it turned out to be such a gift that I'm so grateful for. So yeah, yeah, the collaborations are unexpected and sometimes we seek them and sometimes we feel their affinity right through friendship or relationship. And also sometimes they're just invited in a way that's very unexpected and uh, following Mm -hmm. that invitation. So are you working on a project right now? I've, uh, I know that you have some, you know, and, uh, you know, some of your work, people can access your work on Bandcamp, on, um, on Spotify and uh, on the podcast. Uh, I will, you know, in the description of the podcast, I will, you know, I will um, write down your, you know, your website and how people can access your, your music. But is there like, are you working on something right now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you for asking. Absolutely. I mean, there's a number of, of artifacts that I'm working on. One is related to the in practice is something that tries to encapsulate more of the diversity of the instruments that I've shared really in, in an intimate fashion uh, through these yin yoga teacher trainings and how they've been kind of supporting characters that the instruments and the music itself to these deep types of vision work that you're talking journey work, shamanic components of the yin practice that are, that are shared with Biff and I. And so there's an album of, of that that I'm working on, which is called of sound body. And, uh, Oh, Wow. Yeah, so that will hopefully, um, I'm working with a great friend of mine who's, uh, he's actually a spatial audio engineer who works in 360 uh, spatial audio. And so we're going to try to create, you know, sort of a traditional album that's in stereo, but also context in which we can share it in a, in a 360 sound. He's got a 360 uh, speaker system that you can set up. We've done it at festivals and such. Actually, we've worked together. He used to live at Arcosanti, north of you in... Uh, near Sedona. Oh yeah, I've been there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Amazing place, an amazing place indeed. We we got to share it in the big vaults, if you can believe it, those big kind of arches. Oh wow. A big sort of sound installation a couple years back in 2019 for their Convergence Festival. So anyways, Up Sound Body is an album that'll be coming out this next year. And then I've actually in the past two years, you know, the, com- the combination of storytelling and poetry and singing and acoustic instruments have, have brought me back to a deep love of songwriting. So I've kind of been slowly uh, songwriting over the past couple of years, getting back into that. It's mostly in guitar. And uh, my, my joke has been I'm building a band during the pandemic, which is its own, <laughs> is its own challenge. So that project is called Ripple Little and there's work coming out with that. And then I'm always working on the wood carvings in my studio um, in Rosendale, uh, New York, in the Hudson Valley. And so that that will be constantly kind of happening over the, the winter. And I'm sharing work here in the, in the region, in Ithaca and in Kingston, New York, and other places in the Hudson Valley. Um, and then I'm actually working on a film script with a friend of mine, which incorporates a lot of the things that we're sort of talking about, but in a more story form. Um, and so I have a dear friend who's a filmmaker 
and runs a filmmaking cooperative here in Hudson Valley. So we're working on a film script currently, and maybe I won't give too many details around that because it's still kind of in the, we're getting working on the second version of the script, but hopefully something that combines poetry with ecological awareness, with relationship and history, as well as sort of um, the meditative qualities of relating to the natural world. And so that that is a really special uh, aspect of bringing together these loves, but in a different in a different artistic format. But you know, along with that, um, the beauty of your invitation came through us meeting in the Jamstay School of Yin Yoga and the the work that Bip Mitoffer and I and Julia Kupke from Germany are working on together, yes. um, which is a which is a combination of these really body centered approaches and simple, simple roots of the yin practice paired with storytelling paired with archetypes and the Taoist philosophy. And so, yeah, the third module um, we're, we're offering online coming up at the end of January and that's all available through the, the website, Jamsei School of Yin and Yoga, uh, biffmetoffer.com uh, or biffmetoffer yoga, I guess it would be. And so, yeah, I'm sure you'll share all those, but that would be another really beautiful way that pairs storytelling and really feeling into the ways that we carry stories in our body. We carry stories in our minds and in our psychologies, of course, but how stories are held in the body and how we can cultivate our ability to really listen to the stories that we're carrying as well as the stories unfolding around us. And uh, that's a beautiful uh, combination of that body-centered practice with the storytelling. So Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot of things going on. That's fantastic. Well, I mean, I'm amazed. I mean, you've been, you're a busy man. <laughs> yeah, trying. You know, you know, it's a... Well, you know, it's great. It's like when we are creative, this is what's happening. We are very prolific and always creating and always brainstorming and exploring new territories. That's mm -hmm. fantastic. Uh, Eric, thank you so much. My deepest gratitude. I mean, it's been such a rich conversation. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for the invite. Such a pleasure to be with you. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for being in the show. And um, what I suggest is that we are going to end uh, with, uh, I'm going to play one of your songs from your album that is uh, uh, on Bandcamp because your your pieces of guitar are so exquisite. I love mm -hmm. them. So uh, we are going to to end with, um, with your work. Thank you so much, Eric. So much. Take My care. Pleasure. Namaste. Okay. Namaste.
journey shared. This is the title of this beautiful instrumental um, of Eric Archer. I thought this piece would be perfect to end the show. Thank you so much for listening to the Wild and Wise show. Thank you so much. It was a, a pleasure and uh, an honor um, to share that conversation with Eric Archer with you today. Please, please subscribe to the Wild and Wise show on iTunes, Spotify or Amazon. Thank you so much and uh, talk to you very soon. <laughs>